Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Then There Were Two, a History of the World series. I'm Jeffrey Clark, being joined virtually by a healed Lucas Smith. So, Lucas, prove to the people that you're feeling better. I mean, I feel like I sound better. I'm assuming I sound sound better. So, we'll just have that as proof. And it's good that you're back health-wise, Lucas, because we are seeing a couple of familiar faces slash teams back. First, we have the return of Connie Max, Philadelphia Athletics for the American League side. And then your favorite team, the Chicago Cubs, is back on the National League side. Hey. Yeah, it's been a little over a decade in this case. And much like you're having to sprinkle in White Sox nuggets where you can, I'm going to be getting to the point where I'm going to have to start sprinkling in Cubs nuggets periodically because there's going to be a smattering of things here and there over the next few episodes and then it's just going to be gone nothing and it's going to be awful but we'll get through it that's right this is the uh first of several episodes non-consecutive episodes coming that will feature the cubs but before we get to them let's talk about the return of connie max philadelphia athletics for the first time in 15 years as you'll recall lucas after the age were last in the world series max sold off his entire talent and they were in last place for seven straight years but they slowly but surely moved their way up to the standings pretty much on schedule they were 7th in 1922, 6th in 1923, 5th in 1924, 3rd in 1925 and 26th. Then they were runner-up to the Yankees in 27-28. Finally, they have gotten back to the Fall Classic with arguably the greatest team in the history of their franchise because Mac had a nice trio of hitters in Al Simmons and jimmy fox and mickey cochran yeah even just looking at the initial run differential of nearly plus 300 and kind of looking in that immediate era like that gap jumps off the page compared to a lot of these now granted you mentioned that desert after they lost the 1914 world series to the boston braves and then it's just they completely fell off a cliff they had seasons where they won 43 a couple seasons where they won only 36 games before slowly but surely climbing their way out of the basement and now here they are they're back we mentioned uh good old double x who was a uh, fun player to play as in the special home run mode on triple play 2001 but i'm getting us off track here you have uh him leading the way and some good pitchers on this staff too where you had a 24 game winner in george earnshaw another 20 game winner in lefty grove 18 wins for Rube Wahlberg and ERAs team-wise throughout a 344 team ERA. Earnshaw and Howard Emke each at 329. Lefty Grove with a 281 mark. This is a good club. It is. And by the way, I do have many happy memories playing Triple Play 2001. So just throwing that out there. So Al Simmons, who was 27 years old, right smack down in the prime of his career, he was the runner-up for the American League bag time, hitting 365, and he drove in 157 runs. Fox, meanwhile, who had been purchased from the minors, hit 354 and scored 123 runs. Simmons and Fox were third and fourth, respectively, in the AL in home runs with 34 and 33. Also purchased from the minors were Max Bishop at second base and Jimmy Dykes, the backup infielder, and Lefty Grove at 29 years old, who 
was the Starlet Surge, that ace pitching staff, 2.81 ERA. You mentioned George Earnshaw going 24 and 8, and Eddie Rommel, Rube Wahlberg, Jack Quinn, an aged reliever. The only staff in the American League under four. So, you know, you've got a lot of talent on both sides here. Jimmy Fox, by the way, admitted to being, quote-unquote, as nervous as a hand of hot griddle at the prospect of playing in the World Series. But you never would have known that based on what the A's were putting up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this team is loaded, but it's also, we have to remember, this is their first real shot at it, where... You know, we mentioned they're kind of slowly climbing their way back. They finished in second place, eight and a half out in 1925. They were in third place, but only six out the following year. 27 and 28, they were second place, but it was completely different shows where they were 19 games out in 27, but again, 27 Yankees. And just two and a half behind the 1928 Yankees, and finally they're able to put it all together here in 1929. And not only that, they do it in convincing fashion. They won 104 games. They beat the Yankees by 18 games, even though Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig were still really good for the Yankees. They suffered from a slumping bomb use, only hitting 261 and 10 home runs. And, you know, we mentioned earlier that Miller Huggins, their manager, died late in the season. And, you know, I'm not going to say that was the reason for them going out because the A's were dominating the American League anyway, but still shocking that not only did they beat the Yankees, but they beat them in such convincing fashion. I'm sure that whole thing with Huggins had to have played at least a partial role. Like, I'm not going to dismiss it completely outright, but at the same time, it also does, to some degree, undercut just how good this Philadelphia A's team was. So let's shift over to the senior circuit, the Chicago Cubs with... A 98-54 record, winning the pennant for the first time since 1918. Ten and a half games ahead of the Pirates. Rick Stevenson hits 362 for them. Hack Wilson at 345. Our old friend Kai Kai Kyler is back for the Cubs, hitting 360. All three of them combined for 71 homers, 271 RBIs, and 337 runs scored. And the infield had a double play combo of Woody English at shortstop and Rogers Hornsby. Uh, another familiar face. Pats Malone was their top pitcher with 22 wins. Charlie Root won 19. Guy Bush won 18. English, by the way, scored 134 runs. Hornsby, typical numbers for him, 380, 39 home runs, 149 RBIs, 156 runs. Hornsby, by the way, was called Raja by the sports writers. Blunt and outspoken, which was a nasty combination. But still the best acquisition for the Cubs in 1929 and unsurprisingly the MVP of the National League. So uh, you have to admire William Wrigley Jr. and to some extent Bill Veck who was working for the Cubs at that time for being able to acquire and develop this talent and market the club as aware to the people of Chicago. Yeah, no, this is a nice mix of being able to pull in veterans and guys that we have seen in this podcast before along with a new crew we will see a little cameo in this series of a guy that we will see a little bit more of he only played 25 games in the regular season for the 1929 cubs but gabby hartnett was on this team hit 273 in very limited action but there's going to be a lot of names that are going to be coming back up in this group and i mean on paper 
this isn't a bad Cub squad either. And you know, we mentioned the numbers of Hornsby and Stevenson and Wilson, and this is a pretty loaded group. And on paper, this seems like it should be a good series. Speaking of that series, Game 1 is very, very interesting. We should mention Howard Emke, who was 35 years old, and he would only pitch three games in the majors after this season for the A's. So this was pretty much it for him. But Connie Mack was able to put him to good use during August while the A's were on a road trip because... Emke was nursing a sore shoulder. In fact, he missed most of August. He never appeared in more than three games in any month because of that sore shoulder. But Connie Mack realized that the Cubs were coming to Philadelphia to play the Phillies. And he decided to leave them in Philly to scout them. Because by August, it was clear that the Cubs and the Athletics were going to be the pennant winners. So he decided to use Emke as a scout for that series. So he was able to watch the Cubs and then Mac decided that instead of throwing Lefty Grove or George Earnshaw for game one, he put Emke in. He scouted the Cubs for two weeks, like we said, and Mac wanted the right-handed heavy Cubs lineup to face a right-hander in game one. In fact, you only want right-hand pitchers to face them. And the Cubs were also big on hitting the fastball, and Mac believed that Emke's sidearm motion and his assortment of curves and seekers and change-ups would stymie them. And he had a shade ball, which was a hesitation pitch, you know, curveballs, slow balls, and the bear would lose because the fans in sitting in center field at Shy Park, they were wearing white shirts, and the bear would lose the ball because of that. And he threw the ball from a release point where the arm was mere inches off the ground, which fooled the Cubs hitters, and it paid off in Game 1 at Wrigley Field. He shot out the Cubs for eight innings. He took a 3 nothing lead into the ninth. He gave up an unearned run in the ninth with two men on base, and then he struck out pitch hitter Chick Tolson to win by a score of 3-1. to one. And that was his, his 13th strikeout of the game, which broke a 23-year World Series record. So Howard Emke, 35 years old, a name you would not have heard of otherwise, going out to dominate the Cubs in Game 1, you know, only allowing that one run, striking out 13. At, I mean, 35 years old. How can you possibly think that's possible? But then again, we think of the Walter Johnsons, the Grover Cleveland Alexanders, but he did not have the resume of those two. That's what makes it more unlikely. Yeah, I mean, this has to be one of the most random, complete and utter gems ever thrown in Major League history, and to do it on this stage is all the more impressive, and it's one of those, like, sports are the perfect reality television, because, you know, you're always looking for something unscripted, and that's what sport provides, and it's always hilarious that you talk about, you know, all of these sport movies, and you throw in some scene, and the comment always is, you can't do that. That would never actually happen in real life, and yet it always seems to. And here we have a perfect example of that. 35-year-old with an otherwise kind of eh career who pitches the game of his life. So Howard Emke just taking a look at his numbers over a 15-year career in the big leagues, played for four different teams, was a 500 pitcher for his career. 166 games, lost 166 games. 
posted a 3.75 ERA through a little over 2,800 innings, struck out just over a thousand guys. I mean, not a terrible outing. Had a stretch when he was in Boston where he finished in the top 25 in MVP voting three times. Two of those were in the top 15. So I mean, had a couple good years, but then you know this is the tail end of his career, and here he is just spinning an absolute gem, the likes of which we wouldn't have expected to see happen. And don't get us wrong, there are going to be plenty of unlikely World Series heroes because we're just at the end of the 1920s, and you know, we're going all the way up to the 2020s, so there's a long way to go, so a lot more unlikely heroes are going to emerge. But as far as the unlikelihood of a pitcher throwing a game like this, this one's going to be tough to beat. It really is. So, by the way, the athletic scoring in this one, this game was scoreless for the first six innings, Double X broke the uh, scoreless tie with a one-out solo home run off Charlie Root in the top of the seventh. And then the A's were able to get some insurance in the top of the ninth that it ended up they needed. Uh, Mickey Cochran singled off of Guy Bush to lead off the ninth. And then Al Simmons and Jimmy Fox went back-to-back errors on shortstop Woody English, drink. And Bing Miller singled home a pair of runs on the very next play to break it open. 50,740 people at Wrigley Field that day. And game two, just shy of 50,000, saw the A's win by a score of 9-3. to It was cold and windy at Wrigley. I know it's a feeling that you're familiar with, and even I'm familiar with, because I've been to Wrigley on cold, windy days myself. Jimmy Fox was very inspired, however, because... His wife was in the hospital giving birth to Jimmy Fox Jr., and he had three hits, including a three-run bomb. Lefty Grove, four and a third innings. Those were in shutout relief, preserving a 9-3 win for Earnshaw. So, again, a nice game for the Athletics, who also got home run from Al Simmons. So, already the A's have made their stamp on the series in enemy territory. George Earnshaw, another right-handed pitcher getting the start in Game 2 for the Athletics. And so Connie Mack's secret Dakota ring, shout out to my dad, is working in full force here early on and showing off big time here in this one as the A's get three runs in the third, three in the fourth, and then tack on a few more insurance runs in the seventh and eighth innings to get us to our final 9-3 to score. So the scene shifts to Philadelphia and Scheib Park. And with a day off, Mac opts to throw Earnshaw again. And for the most part, he makes the decision worthwhile. Unfortunately, Guy Bush, the Cubs pitcher, is just a little bit better. Earnshaw walks the pitcher in that sets up a two-run single by Kyler. That proved to be the difference in the game. Now you get two amazing catches from Hack Wilson center field. And the Cubs win not only their first game of the series, but it was the first win in the World Series by the National League since the end of the 1926 series. Crazy the amount of time that has passed. Uh, By the way, that major Cubs rally in the sixth inning benefited by an error by third baseman Jimmy Dykes. Fun times. Fun times indeed. So we go to game four, which is the most talked about game of this series. And Lucas, I see that look on your face. La, 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 la. I'm not listening. We have nothing to talk about in this game. We do have plenty to talk about in this game. Game four is probably 
a game that isn't talked about as much in Cubs lore, maybe because people today were not alive for this majority of it, and this was pre-Billy Goat Curse, so people are even less likely to talk about it. But here is what's going on. The Cubs put up a two-spot in the fourth inning. Then they put up a five-spot in the sixth, get one more in the seventh. So they have an 8 to nothing lead going into the bottom of the seventh inning. But then Fred Lee described what happened next as the most spectacular rally in the entire history of the sport. So Simmons belts a home run off Charlie Root, and that's just the beginning. Five of the next six A's hit singles off of Root, and the Philly fans who have been booing their team a few innings before, typical Philadelphia fans, I'm not sorry for that, they really came to life. So Joe McCarthy, who will be a prominent figure on this podcast in the future, not for this team, he decides to pull Root and puts veteran Arts Neff. The problem was Neff had not pitched in weeks, and he's putting him in this situation. He gets Bill Haas to pop up to Hack Wilson. The problem is, Hack loses the ball in the sun. It rolls all the way to the wall for an inside-the-park three-run homer. And the Cubs' lead is now 8-7. to seven. And then the A's score three more times to score 10 runs, which is a World Series record. Simmons and Fox have two hits apiece in the inning. Cubs were shut down in the last two innings. So... Can you get the license plate of the truck that just ran over the Cubs? I don't know, but have them call uh, my insurance agent, please. Jimmy Fox, you mentioned the two hits in this inning. He had the uh, single immediately following the Al Simmons home run and then followed that up with what ended up being the game-tying single, and then Jimmy Dykes, with a two-run double, gave the Athletics the lead that they would not relinquish. Um, this is the biggest comeback, I mean, as far as I can tell, that we've had so far in World Series history. I don't think we'll find anything that tops it. And that Mule Haas inside the park home run is the last World Series inside the park home run that we are going to have for a while. And that makes me sad. I'm so happy that 1929 did not have Twitter and... I'm pretty sure, even though Hack Wilson had a Hall of Fame career, social media would not have ever let him forget about that. The memes of him losing the ball in the sun would have been stuff of legend. And you as a Cubs fan are probably surprised that this is not remembered amongst the likes of Leon Durham and Brant Brown and Alex Gonzalez. And that's the thing that gets me. is You know, obviously I knew that there were a few pendants that were lost but I never really delved into a lot of the history and you know we were mentioned texting before this kind of prepping a little bit and we were talking about you know like oh yeah I mean game one has kind of the big storyline and then I'm looking and reading through and seeing game four and I'm like oh god and how have I had not heard about this before because this is typical cub before typical cub really became a thing and at the end of the day, I'm at a loss for words looking and seeing at that 10 spot in the box score. Heck, Wilson understandably sat in the core of the dugout motionless. This makes the Steve Bartsman inning look like child's play because even when they uh, blew that game, no, it was only a 3 nothing lead that they blew. And eventually the Marlins were so far in front that there really wasn't a chance for them to rally. I mean, here... They were 
up big, and yet they still had a chance to come back and win this, and yet they did not. So I guess you could say it's like night and day. The Barkman incident just so happens to be the more modern example, so naturally that's the one people are going to talk about. Plus, a fan interfering with a foul ball makes for a better narrative than a player just losing the ball in the sun. This is 100% true. I'd never really made the comparison before, but it's pretty apt, I would say. And now I'm having PTSD going back to uh, 13-year-old me in 2003. Thanks for that. So we go to Game 5. We have Herbert Hoover and the First Lady in attendance. This was his first year in office. Epke is starting again for the A's. This time he was not so effective. Uh, he gave up two runs before leaving in the fourth inning. Papalone was the pitcher for the Cubs. So the Cubs have a 2 nothing lead with one out on the bottom of the ninth. Uh... Upset now, Lucas. Here's what's going to happen now. Max Bishop singles for the A's. Then Mule Haas homers to tie the game up. Then you get a double from Simmons with two outs. And then Fox is intentionally walked. Then Bing Miller, the right fielder, doubles off the right field scoreboard. That's the end of the game. That's the end of the series. The A's are world champions. And the Cubs are stunned for the second game in a row. And this is this is the part that I was trying to think of. Is I was looking at game four, and you know, we were kind of talking about how this series seemed like a foregone conclusion. Really, after game one, maybe it should have been, because that really was the ultimate sign of what was going to happen. But really, if not for a kind of flukish losing the ball in the sun, maybe the Cubs hang on in game four and you go into this game tied 2-2, and then you have this one that kind of turned on a dime in the ninth inning. And there's so many points where things just could have gone completely differently, and it just didn't. And, you know, that's baseball for you, really. And it's, I mean, the A's... We mentioned how good of a team they were. We were raving about them at the outset of this episode. And they proved it in a five-game, I would dare to call it a romp. Connie Mack was called the tall tactician for a reason. He would very heavily emphasize, like we mentioned before, using right-hand stars against the powerful Cubs right-handed heavy lineup. Only used right-hand starters. So that puts Lefty Grove in the bullpen. He was the only starting pitcher in baseball that sees with an ERA under three. Emke, Earnshaw stumping the Cubs. Grove earning two saves, although saves weren't a thing just yet. Haywood Brown wrote, When danger beckons thickest, it was always Grove who stood towering on the mound, whipping over strikes against the luckless Chicago batters. And the A's had to feel good about their future because Grove, Fox, Simmons, Cochran, they're all under 30 years old. So this was really just the beginning of another impressive run I mean, maybe not as long as their previous one, but a run that they would be proud of and a run that would really make their time in Philadelphia memorable. I mean, we talked about what happened with them in the early 1910s, and in the future, they'll have a similarly dominant run in a different city. But as far as the Philadelphia A's are concerned, this is a talented group that deserves to be remembered. We've brought it up, I think we brought it up in the intro episode of Then There Were Two, and I think it's come up a couple other times, and that's the beauty of being able to go through and do this, is we're getting to go through and relive the history of the game, and we're getting to relive what ended up being a lot of happy memories for people, and even though this episode scarred me and aged me a little bit, 
for baseball fans in Philadelphia of the time and anyone who would have regaled their children with stories about the amazing final two games of the 1929 World Series, here we are reliving it almost a century later. Heck, Wilson was sobbing on the train home to Chicago that night, understandably so, but more than that happened with the Cubs. Wrigley, we mentioned him earlier, he had previously embraced Joe McCarthy as the Cubs manager, but he, for reasons that didn't really make any sense, blamed him for the Cubs losing, and in 1930, the Cubs would struggle, and he began criticizing McCarthy, and he eventually resigned, and Wrigley promoted Hornsby as manager, and of course, that cleared the way for McCarthy to go to New York and take over a team that already has, by anyone's standards, too much talent, and find more success with them. Of course, the pain that Cubs fans felt at this moment would be nothing compared to what would happen in a couple of weeks when the stock market crashed, which kickstarted the Great Depression. So, nice historical background here, and maybe also some perspective that maybe Cubs fans certainly need. It's like, look, you feel crappy about a ball team, your ball team losing. Look what's happening in the country right now. It really does put a lot of things in perspective, and it's like, you and I both love baseball, but at the end of the day, we both know it's a game, and we're able to put things in its proper perspective, and it's important to remember that. Yeah, and of course, you, know, you and I have lived through some major events in our lives that have altered the course of baseball, even if just temporarily. So even though it didn't really alter the World Series, we know what's coming for the country, and people would really need to use baseball as an escape as we conclude the 20s and head into the 30s here. And then after that, we got a whole nother can of worms that's going to be opened in the background of everything that will have a much larger impact on the game of baseball. That's right. So we leave the 1920s behind, and let's take a brief look at our next episode, 1930. The A's are back as we expected, and also back in the Fall Classic is a team that seems to be getting to the Fall Classic every other year, representing the National League. And Lucas, maybe the sting of this episode will be lessened by what happens in this next episode. Perhaps it will, but in order to uh, really see, you will have to tune in next week to find out. Exactly. So for Lucas Spitzel, I'm Jeffrey Clark. Thank you for listening to our 1929 episode of Then There Were Two History of the World Series. Be sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and also subscribe. We will see you next time. <laughs>